So we're recording the program as of now. Again, welcome everyone to Addressing Nursing Home Abuse, Neglect, and Crime. I am really glad you're here. Again, I apologize for the late start. We will certainly put in, you know, the full hour or more for those of you who are able to stay. We're asking that people uh, please type in their questions. There's a box in the upper right-hand side that should allow you. There's like a little bubble uh, that you can click on to uh, to send your message. Sarah will be reading the messages at the end of the program, and then at that time we'll open up the line as well for people who want to do Q&A. We just want to make this as clear for everybody as possible. And I'm just going down to see how I get rid of that. Okay. Sorry about that. Well, again, welcome, everyone. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Deborah Truhowski, who is an elder neglect attorney and the president of LTCCC's board of directors. Uh, I just want to say, Deborah, actually, I first met Deborah when she came to speak at a meeting of our coalition, and I was really so impressed by her uh, her knowledge, her intelligence, her dedication. She's really someone who cares, uh, I think, very deeply about these issues. And it was at that point that we, um, uh, you know, we invited her to join the board. And since then, she's been the president for a couple of years now. Uh, a little bit about the coalition, just for those of you who haven't joined us before. We are a nonprofit organization entirely dedicated to improving care and quality of life for elderly and adult disabled people living in nursing homes and assisted living. We're also very proud to be the home of the local long-term care ombudsman program for the Hudson Valley in New York. Our focus is mostly policy analysis and mm-hmm. systems advocacy. So that's a lot of the, you know, the work that we talk about. Uh, but more and more over the recent years, we've been moving mm-hmm. towards educating consumers, families, long-term care ombudsmen, and other stakeholders because I think it's really critical for the uh, residents and those who represent and work with residents to know about residents' rights and the care standards and how those standards can be implemented. I joined LTCCC in 2002, and I've been the executive director since 2005. So what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, We've broken up the program essentially into three parts. I'm going to talk about some of the definitions of abuse and neglect and crimes and some of the reporting requirements. The reason why we're talking about definitions, I mean, I think people think of abuse as being something that's pretty obvious. Uh, People think of being neglect or crime as being something that should be pretty obvious. Unfortunately, too often they aren't. They aren't obvious or it's not clear to people what a resident is entitled to, what a resident should be getting. And, uh, and what is inappropriate. So we wanted to kind of take a look at how the state and the federal governments are defining this when it comes to, or these issues when it, when it comes to nursing home residents in particular, when it comes to uh, situations of elder abuse, uh, which extend to any setting. And then coming back to nursing homes in particular, how do we get at implementing some of the protections against abuse and neglect and crimes in our nursing homes. Uh, Deborah, who works directly with, uh, mostly with families, uh, is going to talk about some really hands-on things that you can do to ID abuse and or neglect uh, and to understand whether or not care standards are being met. She's going to talk about some of the examples that she herself has worked um, with families on. And then we're also, in this program, going to be talking about how to file a complaint with the State Department of Health uh, she's going to provide some insights into that, and then 
In the last section, I'm going to provide some of the materials and links that we have developed to help people um, understand, uh, you know, identify and uh, substantiate issues that they're seeing in their facility. I always get started with a couple of slides just to give you some background about nursing homes. I apologize if you've seen these before, but I want everyone to, uh, I want to make sure that everyone understands that, you know, nursing homes, virtually every single nursing home participates in Medicaid and or Medicare. Um, and by participate, that's a government or, you know, a uh, government definition. It means that they take in some amount of Medicare or Medicaid money. Uh, in order to participate in those programs, a facility agrees to meet or exceed all the standards provided for in federal law. Now, states can have additional standards or protections. Most states can have less protections. Uh, just one second. I hear someone sneezing. Someone might have passed through or unmuted themselves, so I'm going to quickly mute and unmute everybody again. Thanks. So sorry about that interruption. Uh, so essentially, you know, we, when we talk about, uh, when I talk about protections, I generally talk about the federal protections because that's the basis for care across the country. In our state, uh, we're, we're located in New York and in all states. So uh, states can have additional protections. Oh, Sarah's telling me to please unpause the screen. I'm oh, sorry about that. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, hopefully that's better. I've got a little, little message reminder from Sarah that the screen was paused. Sorry about that, folks. Um, states, again, can have additional protections, but they can have less protections. So I always focus on what the federal requirements are, are, are requiring. Excuse me. And then if I talk about anything specifically in terms of a state requirement, as Deborah will, uh, we always specify that it's only in, in a uh, certain state. So a little bit about the nursing reform law. It says, it's always a mouthful, I think, for or, or a lot to really think about. Uh, nursing reform law, every single requirement, every single thing that happens to a nursing home resident in terms of the different services they receive, the monitoring they receive, the food, the, quali the um, uh, quality of life service, et cetera, they must be sufficient to ensure that every resident is able to attain and maintain his or her highest practicable physical, emotional, and psychosocial well-being. It's not practical. It's not what the nursing home says, oh, I want to maybe have this high of a profit, and I only want to have paid this much a month for staffing services or this much, much um, a month for food services, and this is what I'm able to do. It is highest practicable for the individual. And so much of the nursing home law and nursing home regulation is predicated on focusing on the resident. Where does he or she exist? What are his or her needs? Uh, what are his or her goals? So I'm going to start off by talking a bit about uh, abuse, neglect, and crimes against residents and how they are defined. And again, because I think these definitions are important. As you can see on the right-hand side, this is a new report that we came out with just yesterday addressing abuse, neglect, and suspicion of crime against nursing home residents. And so a lot of what we'll be talking about today comes from that report. And you can access all of this information on our website, nursinghome411.org. The report is there. We'll provide links again. 
The reason why I particularly wanted to mention that is we always, those of you who've been on our programs before, we provide a lot of information. Um, they tend to be, I think, pretty content heavy. But I really want to do my goal is to plug in with you on these issues. Uh, you definitely don't have to worry about taking notes or writing things down. Again, this program, as I mentioned at the start, is already available on our website. We're going to download the recording of this program uh, later this week. And all of the materials, the report that we came out with, individual materials, as we'll talk about later, are all available. So I really just wanted to uh, express that, that, you know, don't worry that there's a lot of information coming your way. It's really more to plug in with you. Well, this is what abuse is. This is what neglect is. These are some things that we should be thinking about and looking at. So this is according to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is the federal agency. Uh, they define abuse as the willful infliction of injury, unreasonable confinement, intimidation, or punishment with resulting physical harm, pain, or mental anguish. So there's a whole bunch of things here. Willful infliction of injury, unreasonable confinement, intimidation, punishment. That could mean a, a lot of different things. It could be sometimes a, uh, you know, we hear about a nurse or a nurse aide pushing a resident or pinching a resident or shouting at a resident, um, intimidating them. We hear, unfortunately, about uh, nursing homes that tell people, well, they can't go to uh, recreational activities, they can't use the gym, etc., until they behave better. Those are, are abuse. Those, those are abusive behaviors, abusive practices. Neglect, on the other hand, is defined by CMS as the failure to provide goods and services necessary to avoid physical harm, mental anguish, or mental illness. I want to talk a little bit about crimes. Now, crimes can be defined on a federal, state, or local level. And so that they become a bit of an issue because there's not, you know, with the, with the nursing home regulations, as I mentioned before, we know what the expectations are. You know, states may add a few things, but really the, the, the standards are all in the federal, uh, in the federal requirements. For crimes, crimes can differ somewhat. And I think that has been something that has inhibited the better identification of when a nursing home resident is a victim of a crime. So what we tried to do in our report, and what I'm going to talk a little bit about here, is that there are some things that we have identified as being criminal for, you know, not only nationwide, but really, you know, throughout Western civilization, for several hundred years now. I, I went, remember going to law school and we talked, these are the things that we learned about when we learned about crime. You know, people know from Law and Order, from other TV shows, of course, assault and battery. Uh, assault is any intentional act that causes another person to fear that she is about to suffer physical harm. So I always, I remember until I went to law school, I would get these things very confused and sometimes I still do. It, assault is when you know, you're going to strike a person or you're going, you're doing something, you run up to them in a way that is intimidating, like you're going to throw a punch. Uh, but it's the battery portion that's the actual physical contact. Uh, so usually you have an assault in the battery, but not always. could have someone who comes up from you from behind and, say, punches you and, you know, gives you a kidney punch. That's battery, but it may not be assault because the, you didn't have the fear to begin with. But 
The reason why I want to spend a moment talking about that is because you can have assault without batteries. So if a, say, a nurse aide raises her hand to smack a resident across the face, doesn't do it, that's still criminal or potentially criminal. That's still something that is abusive. Even though um, he or she did not follow through and actually make contact, that is still considered an assault, and that, that's really important. A uh, criminal threat, a criminal threat involves one person threatening someone else with physical harm. So that's something that's usually communicated, especially when we think about the nursing home situation in a, uh, in a verbal sense. As we note here, uh, just so you know, some states require that a criminal threat be made, uh, in writing rather than, than, than um, um, just verbally. So just to, you know, be careful. There may not be a crime. But in any case, it is a threat, and, and, and having that threat, whether it's a, um, you know, sometimes we have we hear about nurse aides taking pictures of residents and and threatening to 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 send them out to social media or actually sending them out to social media. That you know, threatening to do that um, can be a criminal threat as well. Uh, there are property crimes. Now, our work here at LTCCC, we're not really focused on that. But we know that, uh, you know, maintaining residents' possessions, whether it be hearing aids or um, dentures or jewelry, et cetera, is a major issue. And nursing homes have a responsibility to protect residents' property and residents' possessions from theft. Uh, Incoke crimes are incomplete crimes, so it's still a crime and it's like attempted murder or attempted, attempted rape. Uh, you know, if you see someone where, where a resident, someone has attempted to do something bad to them, that could be a crime as well. And then there are statutory crimes, such as, for instance, statutory rape, which we normally consider to be when a person who is underage agrees to have um, sexual relations with an, with an adult, uh, that that would be considered statutory statutory rape, excuse me, but I would say the reason why I wanted to include it here is that there are situations in nursing homes in particular where a resident may have dementia or or another cognitive impairment and may not be able to make decisions for him or herself, so it's very important to uh, consider this that, you know, if a person, I would say, is not able to make decisions for him or herself, that uh, something that they're involved in, maybe an inappropriate relationship, could be an issue as well. So we talk about abuse, we talk about neglect, and of course we're talking about crime now. And you know what I just wanted to mention is that there is, as you can see here, incredible overlap. I mean, some abuse um, or some neglect can really be abusive. Um, some crimes are, you know, some abuse and neglect fall into crimes and some do not. So what we're trying to do here and in the materials we posted on the website is to clarify because the, again, the lack of action uh, on the par- part of caregivers in nursing homes and others to recognize what is going on as potentially abusive or neglectful or a crime uh, and reporting it appropriately and acting on it appropriately is a um, very serious and, and widespread problem. So what I'm going to do now is talk a little bit about some of the definitions. Again, you know, what, what is physical abuse? It's the essentially the infliction of pain or injury on someone. 
as I said before, could include slapping or pinching, rough handling, uh, any inappropriate use of drugs um, to restrain someone like antipsychotics or psychotropics. We include some signs here for each of them. Signs of potential physical abuse include bruises, wounds, cuts, uh, restraint or grip marks like on someone's wrists or someone's ankles, or maybe across someone's stomach. Uh, psychological abuse, uh, there's emotional abuse, there's sexual abuse. I'm going to try to go through a few of these uh, quickly, but I want to mention, as I noted on the side, that signs of emotional, psychological, or sexual abuse can also include, in addition to the physical abuse signs, you know, bruising, wounds, etc., um, it could include someone becoming very withdrawn, someone showing uh, emotional distress or being agitated, such as someone with, with dementia especially who is not able to express that they've been emotionally abused or sexually abused. Uh, acting nervous or fearful, especially around uh, someone else. Unusual behaviors, such as rocking back and forth or hitting oneself. Those can all be signs of, of abuse. There was a hearing, uh, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, uh, in Congress on nursing home abuse, and one of the women who testified, her mother had been sexually abused in a nursing home. It was a horrible story, and she had dementia, and she couldn't, uh, she couldn't express what had happened to her, but she, she was punching um, the area of her vagina and, uh, and upset. And she was, they later found out, indicating that she had been, that she had been raped by one of her caregivers. And unfortunately, that's something that happens, according to a CNN article, they found that there are, um, you know, thousands of cases of sexual abuse in nursing homes that too often do not uh, go unaddressed. Uh, a few things here, and I won't go through all of them again, just in the interest of time. Uh, how can abuse or neglect occur? Uh, inappropriate physical contact, especially, of course, when we talk about a um, sexual abuse, but it also can be hitting, could be uh, pinching, could be rough handling. Uh, falls and pressure ulcers could be a sign, not, not, not necessarily, um, but quite often could be a sign that there's abuse or neglect, uh, especially with pressure ulcers. Pressure ulcers are almost always preventable and treatable. So when we see high pressure ulcer rates as we have uh, in our nursing homes, that is something that is very concerning. A wandering and the effects of wandering, what happens to a resident when they wander in a dangerous area in or outside of the nursing home, that also is, I would say, a sign of, especially of neglect. The use of chemical restraints or, or physical restraints, people who have infections, uh, you know, that, those are all indications of that, hmm, what are, where's the monitoring? Where is the appropriate care for the resident? Uh, the next section we're going to talk about reporting, you know, some issues around reporting and addressing abuse and neglect and crimes against nursing home residents. So a little bit about what the federal requirements are. Uh, you know, again, as I note here, because nursing home residents are so vulnerable, it's really important that reporting, identification and reporting of abuse and neglect involving residents takes place in a quick and effective manner. So the nursing home reform law, the federal law that's been in place since 1987, says essentially two things. Every state must have a process for receiving and reviewing and investigating allegations of neglect and abuse by a nurse aide on a resident or by another individual 
that the facility uses to provide services to such a resident. So what they're saying here, and it's a little bit clunky, uh, is essentially that they must investigate not just nurse aid, you know, um, allegations of neglect or abuse, but by anyone who's providing services. The nursing home is responsible for the entirety of care, no matter who provides it, the entirety of care and monitoring provided nursing home residents. Second, it's the federal regulation, federal law, excuse me, says all alleged violations of abuse and neglect standards must be reported to the nursing home administrator and to state officials, including the state survey agency, which is normally, um, as we have here in New York, the Department of Health. Some states have a Department of Public Health, etc. So any allegation of abuse or neglect must be reported both to the administrator and to the state survey agency. In addition, because there were so many, you know, problems still persisted from 1987 to 2009, you know, 2010, when the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, was, was promulgated, there was an additional um, standard that was put into place, which we highly supported, and that is the requirement that everyone who works in a nursing home report any suspicion of a crime to both the state survey agency, the Department of Health, and to law enforcement. And we thought that was really important. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So here is the, this is from CMS directly, the federal agency, and it gives you a nice chart. And again, we have this um, in the uh, in the presentation on the website, so you could download this. It's also available from CMS, of course. It says what the regulations are regarding crime reporting and the regulations regarding abuse, neglect, and injuries of unknown source reporting. I just think this is so important. And it tells you, Looking just you know quickly at the bottom when, and for both of them, that the, if you see serious bodily injury, the in the crime it has to be reported immediately. You know if if, if there's a suspicion of a crime against a resident, we talked a little bit about those crimes. What could be a crime before? Just a suspicion doesn't have to be proven. Doesn't mean that the nurse aide or the janitorial staff or the administrator is responsible for being Perry Mason. It means that they're responsible. Hmm, that looks like something that could be a crime. Again, assault, could be neglect, could be, you know, any of those things that we spoke about before. They have to report immediately if they think that the resident has suffered serious bodily injury and no later than two hours after forming the suspicion. If there's not serious, serious bodily injury, then they have an, at most 24 hours. And then in terms of, you know, abuse and neglect, the longstanding requirements, all alleged violations must be reported immediately, but no later than two hours if the alleged violation involves abuse or results in serious bodily injury, or again, 24 hours if it does not involve abuse or does not result in serious bodily injury. So the thresholds are pretty much the same. It's immediate but you have up to two hours. It's got to be within two hours if there's a serious bodily injury and that's possibly involved. And in any case, no later than 24 hours uh, if there's not serious bodily injury. And those reporting, again, if, it's, if they believe it's suspicion of a crime like assault, uh, um, uh, assault of battery, et cetera, then they have to report that to law enforcement really important. One thing that we're going to be doing moving forward is I, I hope 
doing more education of law enforcement to get, help law enforcement understand how important this is for nursing home residents. So very quickly, what are some of the challenges to reporting and addressing abuse and neglect? Lack of proper communication within the facility. Too often there's either a lack of awareness of an event or a lack of education, lack of understanding that something constitutes abuse or neglect. Too often, I think we as family members, and I've been a family member myself, uh, we as caregivers, uh, even caregiving staff, even people who are well-meaning, they just accept certain things because, um, oh, there's, you know, there's not enough staff. Oh, the nursing home is really struggling. Oh, the staff is really overwhelmed. No, um, these are, you know, people are important. The individuals who go into a nursing home are important. Uh, nursing homes are paid, you know, from 200 to $800 a day per resident to provide resident-focused care and to make sure that they're safe. So, no, um, we, we have a right to expect the protections that we talk about from abuse, from neglect, from crime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, some of the additional challenges uh, in terms of reporting when it comes to crime, as I mentioned before, the definition of crime differs. You know, it could, states can have additional crimes, uh, cities and localities can have additional crimes. So I think that's been an impediment to having that criminal reporting take place in an effective way over the past, since 2010. So that's one reason why we did this report, one reason why I wanted to do this program, why I hope that we'll do more work is because we've got to do a better job. We have to make sure that these incidents are reported and addressed. Um, another reason why uh, is that why the criminal reporting hasn't been as, as robust as it should have been is that the regulation does not include a criminal justice response which would address the prevention, detection, and prosecution of elder abuse crimes under, you know, the Department of Justice's authorization. And this is from the criminal, uh, excuse me, the Congressional Research Service. So, and uh, the reason why I wanted to, to mention this is that we have to have the supports that we have to have, as the third bullet mentions, the supports for surveyors, for nursing home inspectors to understand this, and the support for law enforcement to understand okay, when you see this, this is what should be happening. So I'm going to turn it over to Deb now. Deb, if you can unmute yourself and uh, just let me know when you want me to switch slides, please. Hi, Richard. I Hi. unmuted. Are you able to hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. Okay, great. Hello, everyone. Glad to be participating with you today in this webinar. Um, let's see. Um, so... Um, if you can switch slides, Richard. Yes. Okay, thanks. Um, one, basically three important um, topics that I want to cover in my uh, remarks with you today are, one, and as a takeoff on what Richard um, has already spoken about uh, so eloquently, residents have rights. And I think from speaking with uh, so many families over the years that, they can become just so sort of overwhelmed or just get, go through so many frustrations in trying to fight for good care that um, sometimes it's just it, you get they get, can get beaten down in a sense. And so one of the things that I think is important about a presentation such as this is just to to reiterate 
that there are rights, there are rights at the federal levels and the state levels, and to give families and loved ones ammunition when they're going to facilities to be able to advocate for their loved ones. And I know it isn't easy at all to, to do that, but hopefully in the remarks today, we're giving people more opportunity to do that um, and to renew that, um, that uh, fight to be able to do that. Also, um, in terms of falls and pressure ulcers, I hear so many times that people feel that these are things that are just inevitable. And one of the things that I like sharing is there are a lot of ways that falls as well as pressure ulcers can be prevented. And I will share with you some of those ways in, in my, my remarks today. Um, and, and, then, and that ties into the third point that there are a lot of actions that can be taken in an attempt to prevent bad outcomes or injuries that happen in nursing homes. And I want to share some of those suggestions with you today as well. Um, so in, when I think about ways to identify abuse or neglect. It's a three-part analysis, look, listen, and smell. And it's, it, it can be at first blush thought somewhat obvious, but I think it is important just to go through them briefly, just to give people ideas when they're visiting their loved ones. In terms of the resident being well cared for, is their clothing clean? Have they been bathed? Are their fingernails clean? Because it's a sign of what type of time the staff is spending with the resident. And if the staff isn't doing these things, then there is a chance that this person is potentially being neglected. Also, in terms of weight loss, weight loss can be a sign of different types of things. It can be a sign that someone perhaps was abused and is now withdrawing because they're fearful. It can be a sign of neglect if a facility isn't taking the time to actually feed the person. And we'll talk about nutrition a little bit later in, in my remarks. Or it can signal a change in the person's condition. Does the individual now have swallowing difficulties that prevent them from being able to eat? Do they need a different type of diet? And another aspect of looking is, does the resident have bruises or pressure sores? Bruises can be a sign of a few different things. It could be a sign that someone might be abused. It could just be a sign that someone is on a blood thinner and they bruise more easily. Um, so there, there can be different things. Um, but it's, it's a cumulative approach. This, my remarks are meant to, to have you think about things and be able to consider different aspects and, and to be the best advocate a person can be for someone that's in a facility. Um, and with respect to bed sores, which I'll talk about a little bit further in the program, um, that bed sores can be a sign of different things that are going on. And again, we'll speak about that a little bit later. The second component is listening. What is the resident saying? And when I think about this particular remark, I think about one case in particular that comes to mind that really touched me very deeply. And it was a case where a woman was in a nursing home and her granddaughter was her primary family contact and the granddaughter went to visit and um, saw bruises. This actually ties into point one and two. She saw some bruises on her grandmother's um, hands that looked just a little bit troubling as if she might have been grabbed and the granddaughter asked the grandmother, what, what happened to you? 
And even though her grandmother had been exhibiting some early signs of dementia, her grandmother was able to, with her hand, hit her own hand. And um, that caused the granddaughter some concern. She started looking into things more closely. And unfortunately, her grandmother was being abused. And as a result of the granddaughter being alert and inquisitive, um, the aide that was abusing her was actually indicted and and is thankfully no longer acting as an aide. Um, also, the second component, and this ties into that same case that um, that I worked with, is the staff being verbally abusive. In this particular instance, when the granddaughter was visiting, the staff wasn't verbally abusive to her grandmother, but she could hear across the hall the aide yelling at another resident. And so, you know, that that's just something to be conscious of. And lastly, and listen, is the resident no longer willing to participate in activities? And Richard also touched on this a bit. Any change in behavior is important to, to investigate because it, if it's not some type of abuse or neglect, it might be a physiological change, which is equally important, of course, to look into and, and to address. And the last component um, for the slide is smell. Um, you know, I think a lot of um, people's feeling is, well, there are going to be smells in nursing homes, and it's just part of the experience, but that's not right at all. There should not be strong urine or feces smells. Um, and for a particular resident, if there is a strong um, urine odor, it could be a sign of a u urinary tract infection, it could be a sign that that resident isn't being changed properly, which can cause a whole other sequence of, of problems. Um, and then it just ties in with foul smells as well. If someone has serious bed sores, that the bed sores can also emit a foul odor. And I may use the terms interchangeably, so I just want to let everyone know I'm referring to the same thing. If I say a bed sore or a pressure ulcer, decubitus ulcer, they're all the same uh, they all refer to the same uh, type of problem. And sometimes a family, often, I shouldn't say sometimes, often a family will say to me when we're talking about maybe that they're experiencing one of these things that they, they're, they're hearing or we're seeing, well, I complain to the facility or the staff and they tell me we just don't have enough staff. And Richard touched on this as well. That is not, not, not a permissible excuse at all. This facility, these facilities, they agree to accept a resident. If they're going to accept that resident, they need to have adequate staff to care for that resident. Richard, if you can go on to the next slide. Richard touched on the federal regulations, um, so I won't go into that. Um, in a federal statute, excuse me. Um, in addition to there being a federal statute, there are federal regulations that um, dictate the type of care that facilities should be providing to residents, and we'll go through some of them. There are also New York State statutes and regulations that um, dictate the type of care that facilities are required to give to the residents, and, um, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, as well. Uh, the next slide, New York State has a very powerful statute, and I know that um, there are people participating that are outside New York State, so this is, I'm going to be speaking right now just for a moment with respect to a New York State statute, and, and of course each states are different, 
But with respect to New York, under the public health law, Section 2801D, um, it is very powerful because this statute basically shifts the burden. If a resident develops some type of problem, be it a bed sore uh, or a fall with a fracture, the facility is responsible to that resident to compensate that resident for that particular injury that occurs unless the facility can show that they took all care reasonably necessary to prevent that from happening. And in New York, what's defined as what a facility should be doing is based upon the different regulations and statutes that exist. So, for example, as we'll get to a little bit, if there's a regulation on bed sores, if there's a regulation on accidents, a regulation on nutrition, if the facilities aren't complying with those regulations and a resident develops a bad outcome uh, based on one of those regulations, the facility is responsible to that resident, again, unless they can show they did everything reasonable to have prevented that. Um, so, and so it's, it's a burden shifting, which is different from other um, types of and areas of law in New York. And the reason that that exists is because when our legislators were drafting this statute, they understood that a resident can't speak to what happened to them very often. They are vulnerable, and the facility should be the one that is setting forth and demonstrating what they've done for this resident. Uh, and on to the next slide. I, I think it's helpful and I know, I know it is for me when I first started working in this area, and even today when I think about um, a resident situation when a family comes to me with, with a problem that their family member is, ha is having, it's, it's basically a four-part analysis that facilities should be going through in a plan for every resident that comes in the door of a nursing home. And the first is to assess that resident because each resident that comes in has different needs. And the purpose of the assessment is to figure out exactly what that person's needs are. Then the next important step is to gather everything from that assessment and to draft a care plan, which is a plan, again, specifically for that resident that determines exactly what they need. From that care plan, then the next step is what is actually implemented. And that's, of course, one of the most important things is what is a facility doing on a day-in and day-out basis to meet that resident's needs based upon their particular situation. And when assessing a resident, there are certain residents that are at risk for falls or a resident that might be at risk for problems with their skin or for nutritional problems. And the facility's care needs to be centered around all of those specific needs. And then importantly also, updating the care plan because residents' needs can change. For example, if a resident comes in with early stages of Alzheimer's disease, as the condition changes uh, or advances, then the facility has to change the level of care. Someone may have come in and they're able to walk around the facility, they're able to feed themselves, but if their condition changes, then they need a reassessment to be done to maybe now they need help with food or perhaps before they were walking around so they weren't 
in a chair for many hours a day. But once someone becomes chair-bound, then they need other interventions, like turning them and positioning them and, and things like that. Um, and also facilities are required to, on a quarterly basis, reassess residents, even if there is no specific changing condition that's noted um, prior to that. The next, the next couple of slides and topics that I want to speak about is to give some examples of things that we see that can be signs of neglect and just to talk a little bit about it and to talk about regulations that exist to try to prevent these things from happening. So I've talked a few times now about bed sores and that is, in my experience, a very um, serious problem and prolific problem that is going on in facilities or pervasive problem that's going on in facilities, uh, in some facilities. Um, what I hear so often, and that's why I really like speaking about this, is that families will often first find out about a bed sore when the bed sore is in a very advanced stage. And that's so upsetting to me, and it's so upsetting to the family because the family often they're visiting very frequently and they feel so upset that they missed something. Um, and so I'm here to talk a little about suggestions with respect to that and, and also what the facility's obligations are and also how it ties into the look, listen, and smell. Um, what's important to do with respect to uh, being aware of skin breakdown or pressure ulcers is I know it's not a natural thing to do to visit someone, a loved one, and to look at areas of their body that um, that are typically closed. For example, the backside, the heels, the low back. Um, but those are areas where skin breakdown can happen, and it's important, I suggest to families, that once a week, just to look. And you don't have to be intrusive about doing that. And it can be done in a way that uh, if someone's being changed, that um, someone can just say, I'd like to look. Uh, and one of the points is actually mentioned later in the presentation, but um, I hear very often of families will say, well, when someone was being um, changed, I'm asked to leave the room. And there's a rule that says I have to leave the room. And that's something else I like speaking to. There's no rule that, that says that. Uh, what facilities are referring to, I think, loosely is HIPAA, but if someone is either um, the healthcare agent or the resident allows someone to stay in the room or under the Family Healthcare Decisions Act, someone would be the person in line to be the agent, then a person does not have to leave the room. Uh, and we often hear a situation where um, a family is being first told about a bed sore when their loved one goes to a hospital. Maybe the person's going to the hospital for a UTI or maybe they're going to the hospital because there's an infection with the bed sore and the incoming facility wants the family to know that this exists so that the family realizes it didn't happen at the hospital and that's when someone is, is first learning about that. Uh, so by looking and listening, if someone's in pain, if they sit down and they moan, it could be because it could be just a backache or it could be that there is some type of wound on the low back and that um, by looking can be observed. 
As I mentioned, uh, there are federal regulations and state regulations that really sp speak to specific types of care. And the federal regulations, they're contained in the Code of Federal Regulations. And which, if you would go to the next slide, um, this shows there is a specific federal regulation that deals with pressure ulcers. And it's very powerful in that um, that they are required to prevent pressure ulcers and, and to ensure that new pressure ulcers do not develop unless the condition demonstrates, the person's clinical condition demonstrates that they were unavoidable. But there are many steps that can be implemented in terms of trying to prevent that skin breakdown before getting to a point where someone, a facility can just say, well, the person's clinical condition made this unavoidable. Also, facilities, the second point in that regulation is not only are facilities required to prevent skin breakdown, they're also required to demonstrate and provide proper necessary care and services to promote the healing of any wounds that someone may have and to prevent future skin breakdown. Sometimes I will hear from a facility or even a family member, well, someone came in with this bed sore. Well, this regulation is um, an important pr proof that this facility can't just throw up their hands and say, well, someone came in with it, you know, what can we do? Well, what they can do is they can heal it and take all steps necessary to try to heal that particular wound. And someone may say, well, what can be done? People are lying in bed all day or they're in a chair. How can we prevent skin breakdown? Well, there are things. If someone's no longer able to turn themselves, then the facility should be putting them on a turning and positioning schedule. Also, the skin is um, susceptible to being, um, if someone is in an adult diaper, for example, and they're not being changed on a timely basis, if the skin is subjected to wetness or feces for prolonged periods of time, that can make the skin much more delicate and can cause skin breakdown if someone isn't being changed on a timely basis. Also, a lot of times people feel, well, it's important to have someone out of bed and, and not lying in bed all day. And I do agree with that. But when someone is in a chair, there's actually even greater pressure on the low back and the buttocks area. So there are, if someone is at risk, there are heightened um, turning requirements that a facility should be instituting so that someone is not getting too much pressure in that area. And one of the things I, I neglected to say earlier is sometimes pressure ulcers can be this mysterious type sounding condition, but in reality, they come from having just too much pressure in a particular area. When um, most people will be sitting down we might change position six or seven times while we're sitting for, for an hour or 45 minutes. But if someone is physically incapable of doing that or may forget to do that because they have some type of cognitive problem, then they're going to sit in the same position. And sometimes we see situations where someone is wheeled out to the nurse's station and sitting there literally for hours and hours and hours at a time. And that could be, in a certain circumstances, neglectful care because that resident isn't getting the type of interventions that they should be getting based on the assessment and the care planning for that particular individual. Uh, as I mentioned, there are also uh, 
comparable New York State regulations in addition to the federal regulations that exist. Um, so the next slide deals with um, another common area that can be indicative of neglect as well, and that's falls. I will often hear, well, someone is frail, they're weak, people are, are going to fall, and it's just inevitable. And yes, that's true, that residents, as people get older, they can be more frail, but that is something that should be assessed and care planned for and have appropriate interventions. I realize that not every fall can be prevented, but what is important and what the regulations require is that facility take appropriate steps. We often hear situations where someone, a resident, has fallen multiple times, and those are huge red flags that are going up, that this resident is at risk and that they should be getting an appropriate assessment and care plan and interventions to make sure that all steps are taken to try to keep them safe. Sometimes families may not even know there's their falls that are happening. They might see bruises um, on the face or the legs, and that goes within what I was speaking about earlier regarding looking. If there are bruises, what could it be indicative of? And try to look further to see what's causing that. Um, and the next slide shows a federal, specific federal regulation that deals with accidents. And it's really powerful, so I'll just read it, that the facility must ensure, that's a powerful word, that the resident's environment is free of accident hazards as possible. So that would mean things on the floor that they could trip on, um, things near them that, that, you know, if they fell might be, um, might cause injury to them. Um, and then the second point is, is, is very powerful in terms of what I was speaking about, about prevention, that so the facility must ensure that each resident receives adequate supervision and assistive devices to prevent accidents. And what they're referring to in that section are things like um, lowering a bed, perhaps keeping someone near the nurse's station if, if they're uh, at risk and they're getting up and down, um, a toileting schedule, possibly some type of alarm, a bed alarm, a chair alarm, mats on the floor. Now, I just listed several things, and not each of those is appropriate for every resident, but part of the assessment care planning process is to determine the risk and decide which of these interventions would or wouldn't be appropriate for that individual. And again, it's, it's, not, an, it's not an adequate defense for facilities say, well, we just don't have enough staff to get in there to take someone to the bathroom. That's, that's an unacceptable response. They need to have the appropriate staff to do these things. And again, I know if someone has had a resident, a loved one in a facility, they can say, well, that's all well and good to hear, but that's not what's happening. And, and I understand that. And I'm trying to arm people with the fact that there are regs that require that I know it's very difficult to change the facility and make them hire people, perhaps, but I think the more people know that, it's not just common sense that they should have enough staff. There are regulations that dictate they have to have adequate supervision for residents. And similarly to the federal regulation, there are state, New York State regulations as well that 
dictate what the facility must ensure regarding safety. The next slide deals with um, nutrition and weight loss. Uh, and this, again, ties into what I was speaking about a little bit earlier regarding if a resident is losing weight, it is definitely important to understand why. Uh, it may not be, it may not have anything to do with neglect, but weight loss should be investigated. It's part of the assessment and the care planning process, and it needs to be determined why that person is losing weight. We hear situations, and it's just heartbreaking, where a family, families go to visit and they come in and they see a tray that isn't touched or a tray that's too far away for the resident to even reach it or a tray that's only half used. Um, it's just unacceptable. And uh, it can be neglect if a facility isn't taking the time to, it would be neglect, if a facility is not taking the time to feed a resident who's able to eat or to put the tray in a position, set it up for that person to be able to eat. That's unacceptable. And as the next regulation, excuse me, the next slide shows, there are regulations that address nutrition. So again, it's not just, yes, that would be a good thing to do. There's a regulation. And again, the regulations have the language about what a facility must ensure. Um, and it speaks to maintaining acceptable parameters of nutritional status, such as body weight, um, as well as having sufficient fluid, appropriate diet, and again, as I mentioned earlier, if the resident's clinical condition demonstrates that's not possible, well, then there has to be discussion then as to does the family want a feeding tube or what would the resident wishes be. But they first have to take steps to understand why there are there is a problem with nutrition and investigate that and figure that out and take the appropriate uh, put in place the appropriate interventions. Also, with respect to hydration, um, and this regulation deals with hydration as well, uh, if someone is having frequent urinary tract infections, that could be a sign of dehydration. It also could just be something physiological that's happening for an individual, but it's important to understand the causes and if there is something that can be done to prevent that from happening, prevent it from happening at all, but prevent it from happening again in the future. Uh, and similarly, there is a New York State regulation that deals with that, with nutrition and hydration as well. Um, the next slide, when families are contacting us about their loved one having a bad outcome and wanting to explore whether something can be done about it, one of the concerns that a family could have is how will this affect future Medicaid eligibility because a lot of residents in nursing homes are on Medicaid. And in New York State, I'm speaking specifically about New York State right now, when our legislators drafted the public health law, they really thought it through so well and just so impressed with the statute. They knew that most residents are on Medicaid and they wanted to make sure that this statute was utilized to improve the quality of care in New York State. So they actually put a provision in the public health law that any recovery that an individual would receive from a lawsuit they might bring under the public health law because of 
poor care and, a, and an injury, whatever monies they receive will not be considered um, an asset for public assistance purposes. So basically, if someone did receive a recovery from a lawsuit they brought because of bad care under the public health law, that will not disqualify them from future Medicaid eligibility, and they won't have a repayment requirement with respect to those monies either for past care. So that, that I think, is, is very, very important because a lot of people are concerned about that, and, and rightly so. Um, also, they are sometimes concerned about hiring counsel because they don't have the funds to do that. And uh, we always accept all cases in that fashion on a contingency basis, which means fees aren't paid to the end. So that's not an impediment either. And that's from any recovery, the fees are paid. So again, that's not an impediment to someone wanting to explore a case um, if there has been bad care. The other, the next section of the New York State public health law that is important, and again, residents and families are very concerned about, and, and justifiably so, is it's a section called the whistleblower protection. We refer to it as that. And what the New York State public, oh, Richard, if you could go to the next slide, I'm sorry. Um, under this section, subsection 10 of the public health law, it basically says that if a resident does pursue a case against the facility because of some type of poor care, neglect, or abuse, that the facility cannot retaliate against that resident for doing so. And similarly, if a staff person is typically, when we're bringing a claim against a nursing home, we are always deposing someone from that facility as, or multiple people as to the specific care given to a resident. And so if a staff member were to testify and let's be honest, of course, about what happened at a facility. A facility can't retaliate against that staff person for testifying and fire them because they said something the facility didn't find to be in their best interest. Now, I understand that this is important and it's well drafted, but the realities are that families will still potentially have concerns if their loved one is at that facility and they're bringing a case. What I share with families is that if the care is poor enough that they've contacted my firm, then they should absolutely explore transferring their loved one to another facility to, in, with the hope and expectation that they will go to another facility where the care will be better. And I know that's, that's easier perhaps said than done, but, uh, but I do think it's very important if a family feels that the level of care is so poor that their loved ones being neglected, that they do, or of course abused, that they explore every avenue possible, if, if feasible, to transfer their loved one to another facility regardless. <clears throat> the next slide, I, I've touched on some of this already, but I, I will just go over it because I do feel it's important and there are things that um, I'd like to share as much as possible. First is being involved in care, in the person's care as much as possible and to ask questions. I know the system can sometimes appear to uh, be a deterrent to asking questions. The doctor may come at 7 in the morning when the family can't be there or working, but don't let that be a deterrent. Call, ask to speak to the doctor, um, ask questions. If something doesn't seem right, there's probably, it's probably not right. So go with the gut instinct and, uh, and pursue those concerns. I touched on before, don't leave the room. 
assuming, again, there's some basis under as a healthcare agent, the resident says it's okay, under the Family Health Care Decisions Act, um, stay in the room. And as I, I think I mentioned before, it can just be very um, uh, just not something that's intrusive to the staff. They typically want to come in, do what they need to do for the resident, and get on to the next resident to take care of. So I just re- recommend staying in the background, say, I'll be here, I'm not going to get in your way, but just, and just look and just observe, and, uh, and it's very important. Ask questions about the resident's diet, activities, medications. We absolutely hear that medications were changed without notification. The families should be notified of that if there is a healthcare agent. Um, so it's important to ask questions. If you see a change in the person, if they're more lethargic, it could be medication-induced. So it's important to ask questions as to what's going on. A person who is a healthcare agent or under the Family Healthcare Decisions Act can request a list of the medications. You have a right to know why each medication is being given. We've definitely seen situations where someone's on a medication for a particular medical condition that they don't have. And because the family was involved, they were able to get that rectified. Also, ask to speak to the higher-ups in the facility. If you're not getting answers from the staff that you're seeing on the floor on a day-to-day basis, Also, visit as often as possible and at different times of day. It's important that the facility not know, well, at 12 o'clock on Tuesdays and Thursdays, this person's coming. Mix it up, go there different times to try to get as realistic an idea of the care that's being given as possible. There are important websites that also give a lot of information regarding facilities both Medicare.gov as well as the public, excuse me, the um, New York State Department of Health websites, which are listed on the slide there. And the next slide um, is part of what I've touched on already, but the, the importance about residents, family members, ombudsmen being empowered to know the rights that residents have the services that are available to them. We've got wonderful resources specifically in New York. The Ombudsman Program, family councils can be very important, filing complaints, which Richard touched on. I am a proponent of filing complaints. Families will sometimes say to me, oh, I filed complaints, nothing happens, but don't give up on filing complaints. The Department of Health at the state level, the federal level, They need to know if families, if residents are having problems at facilities, don't give up on the file of complaints. I do think that uh, the cumulative nature does make a difference. Also, in addition to filing complaints with the Department of Health in New York State, there is the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit of the Attorney General's Office. They're terrific. They will also investigate some uh, certain incidents that happen at facilities, so that's another avenue to file a complaint with. And the more that people know rights, the more that actions can be brought under the public health law, the greater the likelihood, in my opinion, that care will improve in the state of New York. Oh, you know what, Richard, I'm sorry, I went on to the next slide and I didn't tell you that, I apologize. 
Oh, no, actually, you're on the right side. I apologize. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, then uh, the last slide just deals with our goals, which um, I, I think I've touched on all of them already, more or less. Um, so it's just there for people to read. And that concludes the formal part of the comments that I wanted to make. I, I thank everyone so much for their attention and for participating today. Deb, thanks so much. That, that was that was great. I really really appreciate it. Um, so I'm going to finish up. And again, I know that we um, we we are well past two. Unfortunately, we got a late start today, so I apologize. If people I know, a few people have had to leave. Uh, again, this program is being recorded, so the PowerPoint itself, with everything that that Deb has um, written out and that I've written out, is already on the website, and the recording will be on the website within the next couple of days. Uh, we have a YouTube channel, which you're um, welcome to follow, et cetera, but we'll have all this material up there. So um, so thank you. And again, apologize for, apologies for running late. I'm going to go on for about another 10 minutes or so to finish up. I want to talk about the uh, some of the materials that we have to support filing a complaint uh, and tracking records, and then we'll take some questions if there are any. Looks like we have some. So this is from, uh, as you can see, on, if you're looking at the slide on the right-hand side, this is all something that I took directly from the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, it's not my opinion and it's not wishful thinking. It's what they say about filing a complaint with the State Department of Health. Uh, so I'm going to just, just read it briefly because I thought it was important. Who should I file? Who should file a complaint? Anyone with knowledge or concern about the care of a resident in a nursing home is able to file a complaint. So you don't have to be the resident, you don't have to be uh, the son or the daughter, et cetera. Anyone can file a complaint. You can file a complaint in many different ways. You can do it by phone. Uh, every Our state and every state has a, a telephone intake. Uh, you could also leave a message. You can do it by mail, by fax, online, uh, when, or in person. Uh, and when you file a complaint, uh, you should file a complaint if you're concerned about the health care, treatment, or services that you or another person got or did not get in the nursing home. And reasons for filing include, of course, abuse and neglect, poor care, insufficient staff, unsafe or unsanitary conditions, dietary problems. I mean, things that, that I think Deb really uh, laid out so um, articulately uh, before, things that we, we normally come across. Unfortunately, it oftentimes seems um, you know it's far too normal, and that we just take for too often accept or take for granted as as being the way things are when they shouldn't be. But you can file a complaint, and all the things those of you who've been on our programs before, excuse me, know that you know we've talked about this, and we have materials uh, on our website, fact sheets on different issues, so you can actually see for a lot of different resident care, quality of life, and resident rights issues what the regulation is. And the reason why I mention that is because, you know, if you are filing a complaint, it helps you to know, okay, what is the standard that the state is looking at that we can expect the state to enforce. So in order to file a complaint with the state, um, you can go to Medicare.gov on their website. They have a list. This is for any state. You can find the state's websites. Every state now is required to have uh, information about nursing home care, including the results of the latest um, uh, survey, etc. You can also find on this web page 
the state phone and fax numbers to file a complaint and links to file a complaint with the individual state electronically. We have, as Deb was talking about, you know, we're based in New York, uh, and, and Deb's work is focused on New York as well. This is the website for the New York State Department of Health uh, for filing a complaint. And then in addition, as I know at the bottom, and, and as Deb said, we strongly su uh, support and urge you to, if you're filing a complaint, to file a complaint with the Medicaid Protocol Control Unit as well. Quite often, I know in New York, um, our Department of Health and our Medicaid Fraud Control Unit, they share complaints with one another. But uh, as Deb was saying, I, I know I speak to family members quite often and ombudsmen who express a, um, a real sometimes anger and, and oftentimes frustration that they filed complaints or that they feel that the, um, that the Department of Health is not going to substantiate it. But I think, as Deb is saying, that it's absolutely valuable and important that they hear from you. And we're going to talk now in a couple of slides about some of the materials that we've been putting together that are all available for free. You can use, you can adapt if you're working in a different organization. Um, more, more than happy for, for people to utilize for better substantiating when there is a problem, uh, abuse or neglect a substandard care in a nursing home. So this form, as you can see here, we try as much as possible to keep everything to two pages so it's easy to carry with you and print out. This is a record-keeping form for resident concerns where you could post, uh, you could write down what the issue was, when the concern was discovered or, or when it happened, who was involved, whether, you, whether or not you spoke to staff and writing those names down, what actions were taken, and then updates to that issue. So if the issue was resolved, great. If the issue was not resolved or reoccurs again, you can write that down too. And this can help you substantiate the complaint with the Department of Health. So I think that this is really valuable. Something that we've spoken about with them as well in terms of uh, and, you know, recently as well as over the years that sometimes they uh, there are challenges for the Health Department to substantiate. Uh, that a problem existed, and that's why we put this tool together and some of the other tools we have on our website, uh, because we want people to be able to have a record in writing as easily and as effectively as possible to substantiate when there's a problem. We put together um, sample meeting agendas that, again, can be used or adapted for both family councils and resident councils. This is the family council one, but you can see, especially on the right-hand side, we talk about, and we have a place for people to include care and quality of life concerns. So that, again, that they're tracked in some kind of record. And then action, action items, excuse me, issues to raise within the facility, issues to raise outside of the facility. So that this is a way to, to write things down, to have a record, and to have some specifics. Because I know, I've, again, I've been a family member. It's very hard to remember. It's very hard to remember what happened a couple of months ago, or how long the situation has been going on before, um, you, you know, someone finally said enough is enough, I'm going to file a complaint. Uh, the issue is, uh, you know, is of course legitimate. The problem is how do we substantiate it? As I mentioned at the very start, a lot of what we talked about today is based upon a new report that we just released yesterday addressing abuse, neglect, and suspicion of crime against nursing home residents. That report 
as I mentioned at the very start, includes all the definitions and more that we talked about in a very, I hope, easy-to-use format that you can look at types of crimes, you can look at types of abuse and neglect, you can look at what the federal laws and the regulations require about who's to report. Remember that chart that I showed before about reporting crimes or suspicion of a crime as opposed to the reporting obligations for reporting uh, abuse and neglect that people don't think is a crime. There are really very stringent reporting. Again, any of those situations have to be reported immediately. Um, what we want to do is see that happen because too often times it doesn't. We also, uh, just the last point, is that we also looked across the country to see well, what, you know, have there been any nursing homes? Have there been any states uh, or any organizations that have done some, what we thought was, you know, good work in this area in terms of, of uh, speaking to nursing home staff, in terms of working with different stakeholders, staff and crime enforcement, law enforcement, excuse me, et cetera, to, uh, to better identify and address elder abuse particularly in nursing homes but and, you know, in assisted living, but just to see, okay, what are some things out there? And, and as those of you who are familiar with our work, we really try to summarize it in a way so that it is as useful as possible, and we always include links to original resources so that you can go back and use those resources and, um, and access them as effectively as possible. This is the new Abuse, Neglect, and Crime reporting page of our website. It's already been updated. I already added another um, button on the right-hand side. So we have a list of state agencies that I just mentioned. I actually just added the list of uh, Medicaid fraud control unit contacts from across the country. And then we have different forms and tools that you can access here. I'm going to go a little quickly because I know that we, um, uh, we've kept you for a lot, and I appreciate those of you who are able to stay on. This is uh, one of our new forms. It's the Form for Investigation of Resident Injuries or Suspicion of a Crime Against a Resident. And we adapted this form from something that, uh, that we found that was published by the South Dakota Department of Health, uh, Reporting of Injuries of Unknown Source and Reasonable Suspicion of a Crime. And we thought it was really useful. So again, you can download it there. And thank you so much for joining us. Our next program will be April 16th at 1 p.m. We're going to do a uh, focus on care and outcomes, looking at pressure ulcers and infection control and prevention. Again, these are the ways to join. I apologize so much for people uh, that they had an update to freeconferencecall.com. We weren't aware uh, of it, and I signed in early, of course, so I was able to, um, to work through it and get on. But I'm sorry for those of you who had some difficulty and for the late start today. Uh, just want to say, if you want to join us and receive our alerts when there are changes to the law and regulation, when we come out with some new materials, please go to nursinghome411.org forward slash join. Uh, we don't sell. As I said at the very beginning, we don't use, you know, we don't sign up with advertisements or anything else. Everything that we do is available for free to uh, families and residents, ombudsmen, advocates, um, caregivers, and, of course, nursing homes as well. Uh, for those of you in New York State, for LTC Ombudsman, you can see here you can take a very quick survey um, for us to let you know, let your supervisor know. Uh, we're also offering this to other Ombudsman programs around the country for this to be counted as in-service training. If you're interested, just email Sarah at ltccc.org, and we can see if we can work something out for tracking your Ombudsman. And then also for family members in New York State, I strongly urge you to connect with the Alliance of New York Family Councils. We're actually meeting um, this evening. I think 6.15 is when the meeting starts. But if you go to anyfc.org, 
um, you can find out more about the Alliance of New York Family Councils there. So we're going to open up to questions and comments. Uh, Sarah, um, you're going to read over some questions. If you unmute yourself, you can do that. And I think uh, Deb is hopefully still on, and I'm here as well. So the yes, first, Richard, I'm okay. here. Hi, this is Sarah. The first question was, how do you address the resident's fear for bathing or showering? Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll um, say that, you know, what we expect is that the facility will try different things. So if a resident is afraid of um, baths, uh, take, you know, try showers. It could be an issue with maybe the person is used to doing them at different times of the day. Uh, so they, you know, I would speak to this family members around that are, might be familiar with the person's habits when they're in the nursing home. So I'm assuming we're talking about someone who has dementia and it's hard to communicate with them. That the uh, speak to the family member. You know, what did they? What did that person like to do? Did they like to take a bath? Did they like to take a shower? And then, uh, you know, the facility should be approaching it as uh, carefully as possible and and really open to doing different things. There's a really good resource called Bathing Without a Battle that's available. I believe uh, I'm sure if you if you did a search online or Googled it or theconsumervoice.org should have links to it as well. Uh, Consumer Voice, of course, is a terrific uh, organization that we and, and we're a member of. I know Mitzi, who was on before, is a member of as well. Thanks, Sarah. The next question is, can families video or audio tape staff being verbally or physically abusive, for example, across the hall? Um, no. Maybe, Deb, do you, want to, do you want to answer that? I mean, I, 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 sure. I have some ideas, but yes. you probably – no better. Okay, I'll speak to it, and then please feel free to add it in your comments as well. In New York State, it is permissible, legal, to audio record a conversation, a verbal conversation, if one party is consenting to the recording. So if I was to record a conversation right now with Richard, as long as I'm involved and I'm consenting since I'm doing the recording, that is permissible. The concern with that conversation across the hall would be that no one participating in that specific conversation is consenting, so that would not be permissible. With respect to videotaping, um, there, there would be a concern with HIPAA rights. If it's a patient in their room and there was no consent from that patient with respect to that, so I don't feel it would be appropriate to record in that context. Um, with respect to videotaping, which I'm actually looking at the next question, so I can just sort of roll into that question perhaps, and then if there's something more specific, we can, we can address that. Um, and, and actually the example of, of a case that I had handled, um, the granddaughter actually found out that her grandmother was being abused because she put a camera in her grandmother's room. And, um, and the attorney general's office actually used that tape as part of their uh, building of the case against that particular aide. In New York, it is permissible to videotape the resident, a resident in their room based on a couple things. One, HIPAA does have to be addressed. Therefore, in that particular instance, the granddaughter was the healthcare agent for the grandmother. So she was able to consent to the videotaping on behalf of her grandmother as the healthcare agent. Uh, she did not record any audio. 
because if she had had the audio feature on and then left, there would be a conversation being recorded that no one was consenting to. So the audio wasn't done. She just had a videotape of her grandmother. What's also important regarding the videotaping is if there is another resident in the room to make sure that the camera is just on the resident of, that the person has, that is, that it, the, the person is the healthcare agent for or the person that is consenting. So the video should be on the one individual, should not have audio, and those would, would be the important uh, requirements to meet. Thanks, Jeff. That was really good. You're welcome. So the last question, Deb answered some of it. I'm going to read the whole thing. If there's anything else, Richard, you want to add or Deb, you want to add. So it's regarding abuse, a New York State Attorney General Medicaid Fraud Control Unit investigator recommended placing camera in a room. Is that legal? The Attorney General seems to want video proof or a witness to pursue anything. Is that accurate? And would it help to call local law enforcement at the time of an incident? Will they respond? Uh, so, I mean, the, the uh, yes, you know, as, as Deb was saying, you can place it in a room. It cannot record, as also Deb was saying, it cannot record audio. So it can only be recording video. And we always, you know, recommend to make sure that it's recording video only of, you know, the resident's um, only of your residents, so to speak, not of other residents. Uh, other residents have uh, a right to privacy. Your resident, of course, is you, know, you or your resident is um, uh, knowing and accepting that the camera is going to be there. Uh, workers, of course, um, don't do not have a right to privacy uh, in the workplace the way that the residents do because it's the resident's home. The um, so, and I would say, you know, if if someone if the attorney general is the chief law enforcement um, officer of the state. So if they tell you something, uh, it pretty well should be legal. Uh, would it help to call local law enforcement at time of an incident? Will they even respond? That's the issue that we've been trying to, uh, you know, that we, we've started to address here is that you know, law enforcement is supposed to be contacted by anyone who works in the facility if there's any suspicion of a crime taking place against a resident. And that's why we thought it was so important to put together those definitions so people could have an understanding of, you know, essentially some basic things that constitute a crime. And in particular, because I think it's the most important here, uh, assault and battery. It's, it's been historically very hard um, to get law enforcement to actually come into a facility. So it is a it is an issue, just like you know preventing abuse and neglect, and and as Deb was saying, and as I was saying, uh, having a complaint be substantiated. They're very challenging. You know, they're challenges. These aren't easy, uh, easy and there aren't easy answers to these problems. But I do think uh, you know we do want to see law enforcement involved. We do want to uh, make sure that law enforcement know. We actually have a memo for law enforcement that's up on that website page that you can use that they have a duty. And when someone goes to a nursing home, they're still a citizen or a resident of the United States of America. And just as something bad happens to someone or something illegal happens to someone outside of a nursing home, um, and they have the right to have 
the police look into it, so too would I if I was a nursing home resident. So it's not a great answer, I know, but it's something it's something that's challenging, but I would say um, yes. And that's why, again, we try to give people tools to substantiate uh, and to record as much as possible in, in writing. There's, I see one more question. Uh, what about an entire floor in a facility that reeks of urine, not just one particular room? How do I handle that? Um, I would, you know, and I would say it's the same way. I mean, I think that's what um, I'll, you know, let, let Deb, you know, speak to this as well if she likes. But that's, I think, that's what Deb was referring to. Is when you walk into a facility, uh, not smelling it in an individual room, but smelling it in general in and in a wider area of the facility. If the facility, excuse me, has a urine smell or, or bad odor, then something is going on there systemically within the facility and. Uh, I'm not sure if you're an ombudsman or a family member. If you're a family member, I would recommend speaking to the ombudsman. If there's not an ombudsman in your facility, then calling your local ombudsman office and asking them to help you work on this with the facility. And if there's not or if you want to do something else, you can speak to the administrative staff about this and say, you know, what is going on? Again, just like with other things, this is people's homes, and it's expected that it be a home-like, pleasant environment. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's going to be, you know, silk curtains and, and, you know, lavish rugs all over the place, but it does mean that it's going to smell like someplace that people would feel comfortable living. So I don't know if you wanted to add, add anything to that, Deb. I was going to suggest the same things, Richard, um, speaking with the ombudsman to help act as a liaison with the staff. and. And something like that, I would try, I would try to go to the administrator. I realize they're not always that easy to reach, but I would go to the administrator because I agree that it, it's indicative of a serious problem for the whole floor to smell like urine. And perhaps if there is a family council, that's something to bring up at the family council meetings yes. as well. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Uh, I think that, that's really, I mean, the family council, as Deb hinted, uh, and as we've said in previous programs, uh, you know, we think it's so it's so important and valuable that the family and the resident council be empowered. Uh, as I noted before, that was one of the pieces we had uh, that we've developed is a family council and a and resident council materials, including you know agendas that include issue areas that you can uh, write down and 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 uh, mark for addressing within the facility or outside of the facility. We also have meeting notices for family and resident councils that can include an area that someone could write down a concern that they have, such as the facility smells bad, or one of the examples that Deb, Deb gave before about food not being appetizing or not being made available to the residents in, in an appropriate way, that um, you know, those are issues that can be helpful. And as many of you know who've uh, been on past programs, the new survey requirements, you know, the new annual survey, the surveyor must interview the family and resident council. So these are all ways in which you could substantiate, you know, raise and substantiate those issues when the surveyor is there because nursing homes don't get advance notice of the survey and therefore neither will you. But once the survey is there, if you have some of these papers available, you can go back and say, well, these are some of the issues that we've seen, including something like, you know, persistent smells um, and other, other issues. I'm going to open it up now for if anyone wants to press star six on their phone, uh, you can you can ask this question if you like, and if you haven't already. 
Um, okay, well, I thank you all very much for joining us. Again, I'm sorry that we went late. This will be uh, recording will be online. Thank you again very much, Deb, for for your contribution. It was just just excellent. And Sarah, thanks for navigating. One last time, I'm going to apologize for the technical issues that we experienced today. But thank you all for staying on and look forward to speaking with you soon. Bye-bye.